Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. Well, I'm delighted to see all of you here, visitors, guests, uh, home folks uh, that are normally a part of our covenant family. And we're in week two now of a series that we're doing entitled, Who Do You Think You Are? Uh, And so you can go to Nehemiah chapter two if you'd like. And we're just trying to raise the issue of self-awareness. Uh, we quoted a great theologian last week who said that, that true wisdom really consists in two parts, the knowledge of God on the one hand and the knowledge of self on the other, and contended, furthermore, that churches tend to be really good at the first part but not so good at the second part. And so what you have, if you are aware of God but you're not aware, aware of yourself, and furthermore, you're not aware of each other, what ends up happening is you end up quoting scripture as a means of doing battle with people you shouldn't really be fighting with in the first place. And so what we want are people who are self-aware. You know who you are. You know how God has wired you specifically. You know how that fits within the wider body of Christ because God didn't create us to be lone rangers. He created us to work within the body. And there's a more smooth working that brings greater glory to God as a result of that. Last week, we talked about the profile of the helper. Today, we talk about the profile of the organizer. Now, I could do this the typical way and say, how many of you think you're an organizer? But honestly, I think the the more accurate way to get a poll here would be to say, how many of you have a spouse, a child, a parent, somebody really close to you who is an organizer? Anybody want to raise their hands on that one? A few of them. Let's see how many more hands go up when I ask this question. How many of you get ready to go on vacation and there's someone that you really love deeply at every other time of the year, but frankly, you'd like to kill them at vacation time because you start seeing something that looks like this? Yeah, anybody? That would drive me crazy too because I go on vacation and get away from stuff like that. Now, some of you, even with these bright lights, I saw some of you are like, I know what that is. That's a Gantt chart. Yeah, that's because you may be one of the types that we're talking about today. So incidentally, let me say this about this whole process. We're spending the, the last week and then this week and the next seven weeks talking about nine different predominant styles of individual, and we're just using that as a means of raising self-awareness. We're not using a psychological tool to drive what happens here. We are the people of God meeting to worship God on the day of the Lord, and in that context, Scripture and Scripture alone must always drive what we say from up here. But the instrument that we're using uh, to help you a little better understand yourself during the week and in your small groups, you can go to the website that's on the front of your program and access that, pay, I think it's a $10 fee, and you can get that instrument. It takes you 45 minutes to an hour to take it. I also want you to know that we're not just going to leave you in the dark. I'm not going to just stay up here and yell at you about it and have you take the test but not really know how to understand it. We have a couple of dates coming up, one on November the 11th, one on December the 9th, where we're going to host breakout sessions immediately after this service up in the great room, and I will lead that. You need to be prepared to be up there for about 90 minutes or so, and I will take you through the entire instrument to just help you interpret the data that comes back to you. And then after you have done that, There are four of us whose pictures are up on the screen there that uh, are part of the staff here at Covenant who are qualified and trained and certified or whatever, licensed, certifiable, I don't know. We're able 
to help interpret that instrument with you one-on-one. Now, keep in mind, there's hundreds of you and there's four of us, which is why we want you to go to the breakout session first and try to funnel you down. Our guess is most of you are going to get the answers you want in those breakout sessions, but it will bring you to a greater understanding of who you are, a greater understanding of who your brothers and sisters are, both in your family as well as your church family. And together, I think this is this series is going to help us bring greater glory to God as a church. And so it, it covers, as I said, these nine different dominant styles. If you could visualize with me nine tools lined up side by side in a toolbox, there is one tool that everybody in this room, you got one tool you pick up more than any other tool, okay? Remember that, the old Einstein saying, if, every, if the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem tends to look like a nail. Well, some of you, whether you know it or not, there's one tool out of those nine that when you fight with your wife, when you come to church, when you pay your taxes, when you go to work, when you're at the water cooler, when you're, whatever you're doing, you're more prone to pick that tool up than you are any of those other nine tools. Now, wouldn't it be better if you were aware of that than if you weren't aware of it? Yeah. Now, here's the other thing that's true about everybody in this room. Nobody in here always picks up only one tool all the time. You're, you're picking up more as well. But there's one dominant one. And if you take this instrument and you score at, from one to nine, you score a three, you're called an organizer, which means that's the tool you pick up. The problem that you tend to see is a lack of organization, a lack of structure, okay? And many, many times you're right. That's actually what the problem is. And so that's what we're going to talk about today is the organizer. Now I have some organizational traits. Every once in a while I will pick up this tool, but it's not my dominant tool. And before I was aware of all of this, I thought it was a greater skill than it actually was. Have any of you ever had something like that? Like maybe you thought you could sing until somebody who loved you enough said, you really ain't working, right? Uh, or you thought you were good at something and somebody finally came along and said, you know, you are great at something, but it ain't this, right? And you need to, and humbly, they kind of they redirected you to some other area. This is one of those areas where I just had to learn. I've got a certain amount of skill, but I don't have unlimited skill, and this is not my dominant style. And the way I learned that was not by leading a staff. It was by being married. My wife, and it took about 10 years. We, we would have been married 25 years next year. We... Uh, <laughs> We, we, it took well over 10 years for me to learn this because I couldn't figure out why, for example, it would scare her to death when I would say, hey, let's have some people over tonight. How many? I don't know. What are we going to cook? I don't know. Let's just do this. And I, and I got this big dream about, I'm, I'm like Clark W. Griswold, really. I've got this picture of what I want it to look like. But in terms of walking it back and going, well, you need this and you need that. And here's what would frighten her even more. And I couldn't have, for years, I couldn't understand this. She would say, baby, that's going to take some doing, which I interpreted as this is going to be a problem. No, she was as excited as me about having people over. She loves to entertain, but she was trying to walk it back so that it was a good experience for everybody. And it would scare the absolute daylights out of her when I would look at her and say, baby, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. I got it. I got this. Because she knows I'll take care of it means it's not going to get taken care of. That's what it means. And don't worry about it, baby. I'll cook means big open flame and lots of red meat and no plates and cups. That's what it means. Well, it took me years to figure that out. You need somebody that can walk all of that back, don't you? 
In a church environment, you need this. Let's say, for example, that we have some helpers, the profile that we looked at last week, and we've got a big event that we want to do here. We want to do another movie night. We want to have a big thing where we got a lot of food and, you know, bounce houses and all kinds of things to bring the community in and just have this wonderful time. Well, the first people that are going to show up out there in foyer and sign up for this are your helpers. Your type twos that we talked about last week, the Marthas that want to welcome people, they want to embrace people, they want to help people feel the love in the arms of Jesus himself. Those are the people whose names will be first on that sign-up sheet. But now here's the question. If that's all you have, what's going to happen when they show up and nobody knows what to do and nobody knows where the bounce house is and nobody knows where the electrical outlets are and, and nobody's planned for how many there might be? And You're going to have a lot of really frustrated people who were kind of like Martha. And we talked about that last week, if you were here, you remember? Yeah, there are ways in which you don't want to be like Martha, but sometimes when Martha cries out that there's disorganization and chaos, it's because there is. And you don't want that kind of inefficiency. And in that environment, you need an organizer. You need someone who can bring to the table a set of skills that can walk that dream back and be able to put all of those chess pieces in place, uh, not only so that it will be efficient, but so that the helpers and everybody else involved, for that matter, actually take joy in the work. How many of you have ever worked your heart out at something, and at the end of the day, you went, that was the best day of my life? Like, I really enjoyed that. Somebody was an organizer and got that thing working the way it was supposed to work. How many of you worked really, really hard and you went home and you said, I am never signing up for that again? You can be honest. Likely as not, there was somebody there. There was a lack of organization. There was disorganization. There was, there was chaos in the midst of that. This is why we need org organizers. So if you, for example, if you're a project manager, if that's what you do for your living, you likely have just doses and doses of the kind of qualities that we're going to talk about today. And when you look at the scriptures, we discover you've got some company. There's some great people in the Bible. There's also some not so great people in the Bible. And we're going to look at all of those today to see all of these different facets of the organizer. But we're going to start with a guy by the name of Nehemiah. And when we look at the life of Nehemiah, we see an organizer at his best. I'm talking professionally, personally, spiritually, because at this point in history, God's people have been exiled. They've spent about 70 years in Babylon. King Cyrus has already uh, kind of taken over Babylon and established the Persian Empire, and he's released a group of Jews to go back. And now Cyrus's descendant, Artaxerxes, is in power. And by this point, two groups of Jews who've been captured in Babylon, they've already gone back to Israel. One was the group led by Zerubbabel, and their task was to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. I know there's a lot of debate about walls these days. Uh, that's a legitimate debate today. Uh, but in the ancient world, there really wasn't anything to debate because back then, if you didn't have walls around your city, you didn't have any security. And so that has to happen, and Zerubbabel leads that effort, and not too many years, 20, 30 years after that, comes Ezra. There's this whole book about him in the Bible. Ezra comes back and then leads, God within the, leads God's people within the confines of that newly built, kind of emerging city of Jerusalem in some spiritual reform, spiritual awakening, if you will. And in the middle of all of this, there are other men who've been helping with those projects who return from Jerusalem back to Persia and they come to Nehemiah with the following words. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. In other words, there is disorganization and there is chaos and there is vulnerability and there is openness to attack and God's people are at risk. 
And this troubles Nehemiah because he loves God and he loves God's people. He loves his own people. And so his response, first off, is he weeps for days because he truly has a heart for this. Then he fasts, which means, if you're not sure what that means, he voluntarily withholds himself from food and he couples that with prayer, saying the following, Oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today. And grant him mercy in the sight of this man. He's getting ready to go before Artaxerxes. He knows what needs to be done. And he's simply praying, God, would you help me help them? Would you help me uh, come in and stand in the gap and provide the organization where there was once chaos and provide the plan where there was once cluelessness? Would you allow me to do that? He realizes Not only I'm the guy to make this happen, but I am God's man at this particular time in God-ordained history to make this happen. And God confirms this by working through King Artaxerxes to bring Nehemiah home. And by the time we get to chapter 2, Nehemiah gets his chance. And this is where we see the divinely wired organizational and leadership skills of this man, Nehemiah. You see, first of all, uh, a recognition of the problem. Chapter 2, verse 3, the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Artaxerxes says, what is the problem? Why are you so downcast? This is his answer. He's got a straight answer. He's not all emotional, and I really don't know, and I'm just emo today. That's not what he's doing. All right? I know what the problem is. This is the source of my pain. This is what's going on. It helps to know the problem, doesn't it? It helps to know. What's wrong? Why isn't this working? Why are these people melancholy? Why did that marriage not work out? What's going on in the church? It it helps to know those things. Knowledge uh, has a lot of value. Don't you agree? Uh, There's a fable about an industrial plant, and there's this whole manufacturing line that just completely goes down. I mean, it just stalls. There's no power. There's nothing. And so this, this plant is losing literally tens of thousands of dollars an hour. The plant manager is out of his skull. His staff can't figure out what's going on. They can't identify the problem. Finally, in a moment of desperation, he calls in an independent contractor. And inside 15 minutes, this contractor comes in, and he, he moves around, and he kind of examines some things. And in just, just a moment, he pulls, no lie, a ball-peen hammer out of his tool belt, and he just taps really gently on this piece of equipment underneath one of the conveyor belts, and it's just like abracadabra and magic is real. This thing just starts working all of a sudden. And everybody's praising the independent contractor. He's everybody's hero. They buy a mistake that night. You know, everything's great. Two weeks later, the plant gets a bill, $5,000. The plant manager, again, goes out of his skull. He's apparently forgotten that he's been saved tens of thousands of dollars every hour. He gets a little upset about this bill, and so he calls the contractor, and he says, this is outrageous, and I don't know that I'm going to be able to pay this. And the contractor said, well, this is the cost of my services. And he says, well, it's just outrageous. You're going to have to justify this expense to me. And the contractor says, how would you like me to do that? He said, well, for one thing, you'll send me an itemized bill and tell me exactly what you're charging me for. And sure enough, about three days later, an itemized bill arrives, certified in the mail. And when he opens it up, here's what he sees. On line number one, there's a line item that simply says service call, $79.95. Right below that, there's another line item, and it says parts, labor, and materials, $20.05. And underneath that, there is the amount of $4,900 next to this description, knowing where to tap. Because knowledge is valuable, right? If you don't know, 
then it's kind of useless, right? Then that's really, you're just, you got a hammer and you're banging on stuff. This guy knew. Nehemiah knows what the problem is, but he doesn't just know the problem. He also has a vision for a solution. Look at verse four. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? Here's a clue. If you're going to gripe to somebody, have an answer for them. Um, can I be honest about that? It, we, we receive criticism because we're not perfect. I'm not perfect. Staff's not perfect. Organization's not perfect. We're working on it. We're getting there. But, you know, there'll always be something to work on because we're human, right? Um, but we receive criticism best when we know, number one, that it's out of heart of a love and we don't just have a curmudgeon standing in front of us. And number two, when there's actually a vision for a solution that fits within the wider view of the church. If there's not that, and we just keep getting gripe after gripe after gripe, we tend to just kind of dismiss it. So if you want to be heard, all right, you still love me? All right. Nehemiah doesn't just come with a gripe. He's not just a curmudgeon. He's not just, you know, full of emotion, exuding all this stuff that's wrong and, and pouring out his heart to the king. The king says, oh, whoa, whoa, what do you need? And the organizer has an answer to that question. He knows exactly what is needed because no true spirit-filled, resourceful organizer just comes with a gripe. They come, he or she comes with solutions and they also come with the knowledge of the needed resources. Look at verse seven. Nehemiah says, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. So the first thing I need is a hall pass because I'm going across some, some foreign soil here. Then I need a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, because that's where the timber is. And if we're going to rebuild the wall where it's fallen down, if we're going to uh, take care of securing the city, these are the kinds of things that we need. Timber to make beams for the gates of the dark fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. What do you need? And there is a very clear, very itemized answer. You're dealing with an organizer and someone who is highly resourceful and filled with the Spirit of God, who has a passion for God's people, that's Nehemiah. He saw what needed to be done, and he was also able to identify the assets needed to accomplish his goals. And that, that allowed him, if you read the rest of the story, to endure difficulty and opposition, external and internal threats to rebuild the walls and bring safety and security to this entire city of Jerusalem. That's the spirit-filled organizer. They're efficient, they're adaptable, they're driven to accomplish, and they're practical. You know, it's often said of Christians that they're so heavenly-minded that they're no earthly good. You will never hear that said of a spirit-filled organizer, someone of whom God has wired in this way who knows this is what we need, this is the problem, this is what we need, these are the resources, these are the people, this is the money, this is the process, I know where all the chess pieces need to go, and they start putting it into place. And in the 21st century, the church desperately needs these people. I mean desperately. And most of the time, occasionally, you'll find somebody in my line of work that has that skill. They're not very plenteous. They're rare. Um, but most of the time, the people that have this level of skill, they're sitting in front of me. They're not up here doing what I'm doing. They're you. They're you. And you see it and you know it. And there's this sense that God, God has called me. That's Nehemiah. Nehemiah's not a priest. He's not a prophet. He's not a spiritual leader, at least not in any formal sense. He was an agent of a foreign government and an urban planner. And God called him to this task at this time. And so if you are a highly spirit-filled, resourceful, organizing type, you may see a lot of this person, Nehemiah, 
when you look in the mirror. And there's somebody else you might see too. His name is Jethro. And this takes us back to the 18th chapter of Exodus that Pastor Ted had read a little earlier. And you get another angle here on what organizers do because in Jethro, you've got a man coming to the aid of someone above him and giving him a system necessary to push the mission forward in a way that will not do undue damage on the leader. The next day, verse 13 says, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for all the people, he said, what is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone? And all the people stand around you from morning till evening. Uh, The ellipses there are just encapsulate Moses' response. This is what I'm doing. There was a need. I need to fill it. Now look at Jethro's response. What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do this alone. You can't do this by yourself. Uh, There's a sense in which I almost think you've got a helper type in Moses, the kind of model that we looked at last week in Martha, and now you've got an organizer type in Jethro coming along, and you see here a model example of those two working beautifully together. Because what happens is the helper sees a problem and he immediately dives in just reflexively without thought and tries to figure it out and tries to answer everything. And then the next thing you know, the water level is here because people look and go, oh, look, somebody to help. And then you just get bombarded with needs. That's Moses. Hundreds of thousands of Hebrew people out in the wilderness. He's answering every single thing, everything. And Jethro says, this isn't healthy. You can't do this on your own. I I don't want you to die. And and that really is the advantage of an organizer in this situation. When you read this interaction, it gives you a great example of a servant and an organizer working together to actually get things done, number one, in a more efficient way, and number two, in a way that doesn't kill the leader. It's it's a fantastic picture here. you got to be aware of your limitations. And Jethro provides a plan that will get it done. We see that plan in verse 19. He says, now obey my voice. I will give you advice and God will be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. This is your job description, Moses. That's what you do. Everything else needs to go to somebody else so that you don't go to an early grave. Moreover, verse 21, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, hundreds, fifties, tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you. If there's something important enough that it requires your attention, we'll get that to you. But any small matter, they shall decide themselves, so it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. This is magic in an organization. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So these are the words of Jethro, wise words, anticipating the need of the man above him in authority He puts a plan in place that allows God's people to be served and their leader to actually be more fruitful than he'd ever been before. That is a unique gift that God gives to these kinds of people, organizers, right? They know better than anybody else how to leverage money and people and structures and systems and processes and take every resource and effectively execute the mission of God. 
Now, here's the other side of that. Organizers, just like helpers, just like everybody else that we're going to look at in this series, they're sinners. And if you're an organizer, don't be offended by that. Everybody else shares that same trait with you. And what I need to cover with you now is the underbelly of the risk involved in that unique wiring that God has placed within you when it is affected by the fall. There's some things you need to be aware of. And that's the question we need to ask right now. What does the darker side of the organizer look like? If you're the organizer person, what is the thing that you need to be most alert about when you're examining your own soul? Organizers who walk in the flesh, this is the big thing, they're image conscious. Image conscious. Because you have a natural drive to efficiency, and that's a good thing. Lord knows we need more of that in the church. That's how you want to always be seen by others, as efficient. I got the job done. This looked good. That, and so it now becomes all about how it looks. So you have to ask yourself constantly this question. And not in relationship to your efficiency, but in relationship to, to, to your connection with your God. What happens if I fail? What happens if this fails, if it doesn't work? Now, something happened just then when I, used, when I used that question. Most of you in this room are probably not organizers, and you just heard your pastor asking a question. Well, for those of you who are organizers, you just heard your preacher cuss, didn't you? Because the F-bomb is not the word you're thinking about. It's the word failure. That's the dirtiest word you can think of. You hate that concept. You hate to think about doing it. It drives you insane to fear that, that it might take you there. All right? Failure. Because an organizer that's either not self-aware on the one hand or they're walking in the flesh on the other, that's how they will exhibit the works of the flesh, superficiality. It all looks good on the outside, but it's all about that deep, and underneath it is no love for Jesus whatsoever. That's the thing you got to be very, very careful about. That didn't hurt, right? There's a movie from the 1980s. I don't even remember the name of it, but I remember a guy tumbling down the steps. He'd been pushed down the steps, which I think is kind of funny. I'm sorry. I'm cruel like that, I guess. And every time he hit a step, he would scream out, that didn't hurt. I, that's that's the, the fleshly organizer, all right? Always covering it up. Cover up the hurt. Cover up the failure. Everything's great. I, everything's fine. I don't know why you're worried about me. I'm more spiritual than you. I'm doing better with Jesus than I've ever been. And everybody's around you going, sure you are. Because all you're doing is trying to cover the veneer because you fear not just failure, but that other people are going to see that failure. That frightens you more than anything else in the world which means if you're an organizer type, the, the, everybody's got a besetting sin, like something that really just holds them back like ankle weights. Your besetting sin is deceit. Deceit. Lying to yourself and then lying to others without even realizing sometimes that you're doing it. Right? Your soul is so captivated with this image consciousness that, that that's where you go. And then in the worst cases, you just blame everybody else. Remember last week? The helper does that too. 
But the helper looks around and says, the reason that I have run out of resources and can't serve anymore is because nobody else cares. The organizer makes a different claim. The organizer says, the reason this failed and is no longer efficient is because nobody around me cares about quality. The helper thinks nobody cares about people. The organizer thinks nobody cares about quality. We all misunderstand each other, and the dysfunction just keeps going, right? And snowballing until we get to a very, very dark place. All of that is driven by deceit, and it comes out sometimes in things like workaholism, but a flesh-filled organizer is mechanical. They're calculating. They're impatient. Just, just put the brakes on a project for a little bit and watch. Watch. How do they respond? All right? If they go insane, it's like, all right, we got some flesh going on here. Chameleon-like. Right? Let me blend into the background here so nobody sees my warts. Scheming, self-promoting. And have I mentioned image conscious? That's a big thing with an organizer type. You get to this place, and for you, it's no longer about how things are. It's about how things look. And that, that's not good for you. Because from the outside, you still look good. You, know, you ever known anybody like this? Still look good, still sound good, still sound spiritual. You still seem successful. That is the most dangerous place for your soul to be. It's dangerous because it is at that point where you start becoming exactly like another highly efficient organizer that we find in Scripture. An organizer who uttered these words in John chapter 12. Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? On the surface, it sounds legitimate, right? If you know the context, then you already know who I'm talking about. But in case you don't, I'm not going to give it away just yet. This is someone on the surface. Boy, it sounds like I, you shouldn't have done that with it. You should have done this with it. This is an individual who was highly image conscious, highly self-promoting, His major concern was efficiency to the extent that for three years he was very practical and energetic and dynamic and organized and industrious and self-assured. But he was also a man who over those three years gave into the temptation that the highest spiritual value is just getting the job done no matter what it takes, even if I have to take some spiritual shortcuts and compromise my character in the process. The end justifies the means. So if I've got to gossip in the underbelly of a church to get what I want, if I've got to keep pounding on somebody because I didn't get my way, whatever, this is what I want. This is what's got to happen. Because I need an image of success. Image mattered so much to this man that at the Last Supper, he sat in a very prominent place, close enough to Jesus to be able to hand him the bread that we just broke a few minutes ago, and close enough to dip into the same bowl with him before the following happened. And Luke records these words. He went away and conferred with the other chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd so that I can look good when everybody else is looking. I'm going to do this when nobody is. 
this is where walking in the flesh can take an organizing type person. This is Judas Iscariot. This is the man that Jesus would prophetically refer to as a devil from the beginning. And in Judas, what we see is the darkest possibility for an organizer, someone who is self-promoting and grandiose. And in my experience, there, there are a couple different ways you can tell when you've got an organizing type in front of you. Am I looking at a Nehemiah or am I looking at a Judas? <sighs> you really want to know the answer to this question? Because some of you are like looking at me like right now, maybe you're one of these organizer types. You're like, well, I like that Nehemiah and the Jethro. I don't like this part of the message, Pastor. Like, I, Well, you shouldn't. You shouldn't want to go here. You should not want to be this guy. How do you tell? Because like I said, very image conscious. On the surface, looks good, right? Everything looks good. Everything sounds spiritual. How do I know if I'm looking at Nehemiah or if I'm looking at Judas? Take the spotlight and the microphone away from them and watch. And then you'll see. Image conscious. Take the Take the ability to exude the image away for just a little while and watch what happens. And you'll know in that moment, whether you're dealing with a Nehemiah, if it's you that gets that taken away from me, you'll know at that moment, am I a Nehemiah, a Jethro, a Judas? Where am I? Take away their ability to influence. Bring them to a place where it is possible now that somebody might see their imperfections and there's no way for them to cover it up. And if they go ballistic, you're dealing at that moment with a fleshly organizer. Because if otherwise, they'll sound like a spirit-filled organizer. Their lives beneath the surface, though, are characterized by opportunism, unprincipled deception, and sometimes just out-and-out rage. And so, so here's the thing. How do you avoid that? Anybody in here want to be like Judas? Yeah, there's no hands going up. Smart people. How do you avoid becoming like Judas if this is your dominant style? Well, if, if being image conscious and deception, if that's your besetting sin, then the obvious answer to not walking in the flesh in that way is to, in the power of the Spirit, start walking in the truth. That's your answer. And for an organizer, it begins by letting go of the belief that your worth is dependent on how other people see you. You just got to stop that. So let me give you five really simple steps here. If you're an organizer type and you don't want to end up where Judas is now and has been for 2,000 years, here's five things you can do. Number one, step away from your preoccupation with getting things done and be relationally attentive to the people around you. Okay? Too often in too many churches, we use people to build ministry and what we ought to be doing is using ministry to build people. I'm not saying systems and structures are not important. They are. And I'll admit to you, we got to get better at that around here. But at the end of the day, this is about people. This is not about a well-oiled machine or a program that looks good. This is about souls that Jesus died to save. And we've got to be more attentive, more caring about those individuals. We have to shepherd those individuals. We have to value them more than we value what they can do for us and how they can make us look. So step away from your preoccupation with, with getting things done. Number two. Stop trying to be your own publicist. Can I let you in on a secret? God sees right through your image management. He does. Right through it. I'm talking, he sees it with the same clarity 
that he saw our first parents, Adam and Eve, that he saw their nakedness through those ridiculous fig leaves they made for themselves. That's all you got. If you're image conscious and that's what you're doing, trying to cover that up, it's fig leaves. It's worse than fig leaves. God sees right through that. You need to do what your father Adam refused to do, own the fact that you're naked and that only Jesus can clothe you appropriately and that Jesus doesn't need to be impressed with you in order to do that. Our gospel is not a gospel of works. It's a gospel of grace. Jesus is not impressed with you, never will be impressed with you, so you might as well give that up, okay? And don't make that, don't let that make you mad. It ought to set you free. I don't have to do anything to make him love me any more than he already does. There's nothing conversely that I can do. There's nothing, hear me organize, there's nothing I can fail at that will make him love me any less. And if I'm one of those people trying to cover all this up with all of my crap, and he's just looking at me going, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. I love you. Don't you remember what I did for you? My value in you is based in me and not in what you do. It is my righteousness that makes you approved to get into heaven. It is my substitutionary death that keeps you out of hell. Everything is about me. Nothing is about you. I love you, period. There's nothing you can do to impress me, so stop it. That's cute, though, what you did. Maybe I'll put it on my refrigerator. How cute. You can't impress him. So stop it. Don't try to be your own publicist. Number three, confess your failures openly. Don't hide from them. Yeah, for one thing, it'll make you more efficient, right? If you're like that guy on the assembly line and you tap and it doesn't work, it, well, you keep tapping in other places. You figure it out, right? We wouldn't have lights right now if it weren't for Thomas Edison. How many ways did he find not to make a light bulb? When you fail, admit it and move on. That's a healthy way to live. Number four, do secret things, right? Not because people see it, right? That's one way to fight through the Spirit of God, the image-conscious sinfulness in your soul, if you're prone to that sort of thing. Don't do what you do for attention. Jesus actually warns us in Matthew 6, beware of practicing your righteousness before others to be noticed by them. Don't, don't do that. And then finally, and this isn't hard, trust the Lord. Just put your faith and your trust in the God who wired you the way you are. Your system's competency, your ability to organize, your ability to cut through all the chase and see the, the problem and fix it and bring all the resources. God created you that way, and you can be thankful for that, and you can do that in joy if you'll just put all your trust in the same God who gave you those abilities in the first place. Trust in the Lord. Some of you are old enough to remember the movie Chariots of Fire covered the 1924 Olympic Games. There were two Scottish sprinters that stood out in the middle of all of that. Uh, one of those was a man by the name of Harold Abrams. And when Abrams was asked why he runs, this is what he described in terms of his running. And uh, that ought to come up just about any minute now. There you go. His running, he says, is 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. Anybody want to live that way? This is a guy whose all of his self-worth was about his image and all of his image was about his speed and what he could do. What happens when a guy like that loses one of his legs? 
And it's not hard to lose one of your legs. You see how vulnerable we are? You can't live like that. It'll imprison you. Live like Eric Liddell, who said this, I run to glorify God. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. He's happy with me. Not because I'm impressing him, but because I am impressed by what he made me to do. Like, I can't believe you. You ever had that? Like, you, you, your level of talent and skill and your ability, like you're in the middle of it, you take such joy in it. It's because at the heart of that is this realization that God made me for this. He made me for this. And I know that he smiles on me while I'm doing this. As an organizer, that's the choice you have to make. It's between Harold Abrams and Eric Liddell. And for that matter, even if you're not, no matter where you end up on this scale when we're talking about this nine-week series of raising awareness, here's what all of us need to know. Every single thing we say and every single thing we do has one end or the other to it. We're either doing and saying what we're doing to glorify God or we're doing and saying what we're doing to justify ourselves. And we've got to make a choice at every step of the way of which of those that we're going to do, if it's all about you, then the best thing you're ever going to be able to produce is an image. And it's a veneer, and all it's doing is covering up with nice cosmetics the real you that you don't want anybody to see. The problem is God sees it, and he knows it. And so if you want freedom from that, you work. You organize, you plan, you lead, and you do it not to justify yourself. You've already been justified by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. Do it for the glory of God and not for yourself. And, and here's what you'll find. There is nothing you can do that will make, you, make him love you more, and there is no failure that you can incur that will make him love you any less. And you will find your true self not in the image that you have manufactured for yourself, but in the actual image into which God created you. You will bring order where there was chaos. You will bring harmony where there is division. You will bring alignment where there was once confusion and a spaghetti junction. But you will do it like Eric Liddell, not in a means of justifying yourself, not so that everybody will look at you and go, wow, look at them and look how talented they are, but so that you can feel the very pleasure of God who created you to do this very thing. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you for the morning and for, for deep truths of your word that, that allow us to examine in a deeper way the condition of our hearts and our souls. Your word truly is a two-edged sword, a scalpel that separates organs and, and things that we don't even think can be separated and reveals and exposes things that we're not even, we're not, we didn't even know that were there. Lord, I, I pray that that happens this morning. And not just for those that we were talking about, for those Nehemiah types, Jethro types, Judas types, but as we continue through this, this process, Father, would you, would you give us the true wisdom, knowledge of you, coupled with the knowledge of ourselves that allows us to know ourselves well enough to become more like you. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. 
Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already receive from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.